seated. As we do each Lord's Day, let's each now take our copy of God's Word and turn together to our passage for this morning. It's been our passage for this Advent season as well, and that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We have spent this Advent season going through this prophecy. This is Isaiah's perspective of the Christmas story, and it's being told through the prophecy given to Isaiah recorded here in chapter 9. And when we look at this prophecy, that there's a sense where the prophet, from, from his time before and our time afterwards, but there's a sense where he takes us back, us back, him to that nativity scene we find there in the little town of Bethlehem. He takes us there into that, into that stable and stands us in the corner. And we see out in front of us the whole nativity scene as, as we understand it. There's, there's Joseph. Relieved because his bride, his wife, and his child are born and they're healthy. And there's Mary exhausted from, from giving birth. And she's probably cradling the baby in her arms. And maybe he's crying or, or cooing. And we see that the faithful shepherds make their way in. And sometime later, the inquisitive wise man it says, We're standing there, <coughs> excuse me, we're standing in a corner where taking all this in. It's as if Isaiah leans into us and says, make sure to look in that manger, look at that baby that Mary is cradling. That is the Christ child. And that Christ child is the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So this is, this is the Christmas story according to Isaiah. This is the prophecy given to Isaiah, which is the Christmas story. So we've been spending our time looking at this. We've looked at the prophet's description of Jesus as wonderful counselor and mighty God. And that's this morning it brings us into the third description of him being the everlasting father. And so as we prepare to read that and think it through together, let's pray for God's blessing on our time. Lord, we simply we pray for us for your blessing. And we are here as your people. It is a beautiful Sunday. Thankfully, it's sunny and there's no rain. But we're in a beautiful sanctuary. And we've had beautiful hymns and carols. But now we're coming to the most beautiful thing, and that is your word. Lord, bless us in our time in your word. Bless my thoughts. Bless how they are expressed. Bless everyone here and their hearing of the word. May we know you are here with us. You promise to be there with those, those two or three who are gathered in your name. Be with us. Make us understand your word better so we may live more for your glory and the joy of being yours. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. For to us a child is born. To us the Son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So if your home is anything like mine, then over the past several weeks, 
you have probably found yourself watching at least one Hallmark Christmas movie. Maybe watching the same one over again, or watching several others. I found that we were here recently watching one called A Very Merry Scottish Christmas. I mean, how can you say no to a Hallmark Christmas movie titled A Very Merry Scottish Christmas? And I'll be honest, I think it's the only one I've watched all the way through. Now, I've seen bits and pieces of other ones. This one I actually sat down and watched all the way through. But what I've found in watching this all the way through and the other parts and pieces I've seen and what I've understand of Hallmark Christian or Hallmark Christmas movies, that they all pretty much have the same plot and formula that drives the movie along. It usually starts with the, the main character having some sort of emotional or relational conflict of upheaval, maybe from a job or something else going on. There's some sort of emotional or relational conflict of upheaval, so they go somewhere else, maybe back to their you know, picturesque hometown, or their car breaks down somewhere, or they go to Scotland. And while they're there, very quickly, this very kind but very attractive person shows up. And that leads to some more conflict and upheaval. And then Christmas does its magic. Snow's falling. People are singing. And everything works out, and everyone lives happily ever after, except for the boyfriend who was left behind in the city, uh, because girl went back to small town and fell in love with Lumberjack who ran a donut shop or did whatever with his life, right? But it's the same plot time and time again. And it's interesting because by the time you get to it, everyone's very comfortable with each other. And their, their situation is very comfortable and everything just turns out to be hunky-dory. But the thing is, as we know, life isn't really like that, is it? Real life isn't like a Hallmark Christmas movie. Real life can be difficult. It can be messy. It can be stressful. There's depression. There's anxiety. There's all sorts of things that make real life difficult. So these Hallmark movies can make for a great escape from reality, but it's not reality. Reality is everything isn't always comfortable. Everything isn't always a-okay. Everything isn't always hunky-dory. Life is hard. And the sooner we realize that, the better it is, right? But life can be uncomfortable even at this Christmas season. The longer I've been in ministry, the more I realize that Christmas may be one of the hardest times of the year for people. We hear the songs, it's the most wonderful time of the year, filled with joy and so on and so forth, but it's not always true. This can be one of the hardest times of the year for people. And it's because of that reality of life and that reality of season that we need the true biblical meaning of Christmas, which is not found in a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's only found in Scripture because it's in that true reality that the comfort of, of the comfort of Lord, it, 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 it's only the comfort of the Lord that he can provide for his people. These movies may make for a great escape, but the escape is brief. And what we need is the comfort of the Lord. And so as we're going through Isaiah's prophecy, we're coming to a title this morning, which is meant to be a title of comfort, especially a title of comfort for God's people, because it's the title of everlasting father. And so as Isaiah shares this for the people of time, it's been recorded for us. When we come to this part, we hear it sung in Handel's Messiah. As we read it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's, verse 6 is meant to bring us comfort. 
But for us to understand that comfort, we have to keep in mind the reason for this prophecy. We talked about before in the previous chapter, God through Isaiah is telling his people that they are going to come under his discipline for their continued unrepentant habitual sins. And what we have seen is that God's people at this point have spent more time, more effort, more thought, and more love on their sins and sinfulness than they have on God and following him. They have the designation of being God's people. They have the, the heritage of being God's people. They've had the tabernacle. They've had the temple. They've had the prophets. They've had David. They have all that it means to be God's people. But where do they keep on ending up? They keep on ending up loving their sins and their sinfulness more than God and following after Satan more than following after God. So God is going to discipline them. That's what he tells in chapter 8. He's going to discipline them for this. But it's discipline with the goal of getting them back on the right track. It's not just discipline for the sake of discipline, but to get their attention and to say, you're going the wrong way. You need to come back to me. And that brings us to chapter 9. Because here God gives this prophecy to Isaiah as a prophecy of hope. It's this prophecy that says, even though you're going to come under discipline, there is still hope because there's a child coming. A child will be born. A son will be given. And this one will be the king of kings. So in that hope, we provide this note, this note of comfort that this child, this son, this one promise is going to be the everlasting father. It's meant to be all the comfort that can be wrenched out of knowing a good and loving father with his children. And some of us may easily relate to that. Because God has blessed us with good earthly fathers who have loved us and cared for us, who have faithfully pointed to Jesus over and over again. So we know what a good earthly father is. Some of us may not know our earthly fathers. But the Lord has blessed us by other family members and friends who stepped into that role. Some of us have had rotten earthly fathers. By no means the, the poster child for being a father. They didn't love and care as they should. They didn't point to Jesus as they were called to. But no matter where we find ourselves in a spectrum on the goodness of our earthly father, this title, this description is still meant to be comfort. That no matter what your earthly father is like, you have a heavenly father. The one who is perfect, who is sinless, who is holy, who is good, has chosen to relate to you as the perfect and loving father. And that's a note of comfort, especially for Isaiah's readers, who, who know their sins, who know what they have done. They have been warned time and time again. Now they're going to suffer discipline for it. But they know in the midst of that discipline, there is comfort. Because there is one coming who will be their everlasting father. But that note of comfort is for us in the here and now as well. In the midst of our struggles. In the midst of our sins and sinfulness. And in the midst of, of how often we rebelled against God, that child was born. That son was given. Born in that manger in Bethlehem. And he has come to relate to us as the everlasting father. What Isaiah has been doing here in these titles is he's been ascribing to Christ the, the, the definitiveness of his deity. As we looked at, looked at with wonderful 
A wonderful counselor. That wonderful points to the Old Testament use of being miraculous and supernatural. Isaiah is saying that this child born isn't somebody who's, who's just super duper in everything. No, he's divine. He's supernatural. He's God. And then he says he's the one being born is the, uh, the, the wonderful counselor and mighty God. That's explicit, isn't it? The one coming is identified as, as the mighty warrior God who's going to come do battle for his people. And now here he says the one coming is everlasting. Now we understand everlasting means eternal. It's another way of saying eternal. So the prophesied child here is eternal. So it's another designation of the deity of Christ. That the child being born, the child that was going to be born, the son is going to be given is indeed God himself because he is everlasting. See, eternal is a designation only for God. None of us are eternal. We all have a begin date and we all have an ending date, to put it bluntly. Nothing is eternal except God. And that designation is used here for this child. The one Isaiah prophesies is coming is the one who possesses divine eternity, which means he is God. He is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God because he is eternal. And that is the comfort for God's people that this one coming doesn't have a, a, a beginning date and an ending date. Yes, he will be born, but because God, because he is God, he is eternal. He has existed from eternity before and he will exist from eternity after. He's not going to come and go. He's not going to be here one day and gone the next. This is the comfort of eternity. This one coming is the eternal God. And that's comfort. Comfort, a child to be born is identified as God. He's not one lesser, not one separate, but one who is very God himself. And that's part of the theme of the Christmas story for us, isn't it? We think of the angel coming to Joseph and telling Joseph that the name of the child shall be Emmanuel. Because what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God himself with us. The angels coming to the shepherds, announcing to them that born that day in the city of David is who? Christ the Lord, the Messiah. Isaiah is bringing comfort here to his people by saying the one going to be born is God. The eternal God born for us. And that is meant to be comfort. But how is he going to be everlasting with us? He's going to be everlasting with us as our Father. Now, I hope this registers somewhere on your Trinitarian radar. Because how can the one we know as the Son of God also be the everlasting Father? How can the Son be born as the Father? What, what's going on here? Is the Bible wrong? The Christmas story wrong? Does the Bible contradict himself? No, no, and no. Remember, what precedes this is the declaration that he will be the king of kings. The government shall rest upon his shoulders. So back in that time, kings would refer to themselves as being the father of their subjects. And this was to show that the king would also be their benevolent protector. That would be the ideal king. He would operate as their, their kingly father and take care of them. And this is the way Isaiah says that God himself will care for his people. This Jesus, our king, will be a kingly father to love us, to care for us, to protect us, to defend us. 
He's going to be the kingly father who will do this for his people. So this isn't messing up the Trinity. This is saying the one who's going to come as your king is going to come as one who's going to be your kingly father. And he's going to love you as such. He's going to provide for you as such, protect you as such. He's going to go to battle for you. He is the everlasting father. As we dig a little bit deeper, there, there's another triune meaning at work here as well. As we said before, our, our God is the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. He's the eternal three in one, one in three. And the biblical Christian faith says that three distinct persons are now are the one divine nature in its entirety. So here's what this, here's what this means. The Father possesses all that makes God who He is. The Son possesses all that makes God who He is. And the Spirit possesses all that makes God who He is. So the Bible is very clear to make sure that we understand we do not worship three separate distinct gods, each who, uh, of whom has his own power, his own intelligence, and so on. Instead, we worship one God and three persons who hold in common the same power, the same intelligence, and so on. That's why I believe there's God the Father and God the Son. And what we see from this, going into New Testament, is that the Son came to make the Father known. That the everlasting kingly Father, the Son of God, came to make the heavenly Father known. We think of what John says in his gospel, John 17, 26. I made known to them, and this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love of which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And 14, 7, if you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Isaiah, prophesying of this child to be born, this everlasting father, is going to be the one who comes to make the heavenly father known to us. Why? Because there is no way to come to the father except through the son. Other um, religions, quotation mark, out there will tell you that all paths lead to God. Through Allah, through Buddha, through Sun Ra, through whatever God you want to make up. All paths lead to the same God. And as the pastor used to say, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. There is only one path to the Father, and it's through the Son. This one prophesied is the doorway to knowing the Father. We cannot say any clearer than that. You cannot know the Father apart from knowing the Son. The pastor says it this way. You see the Father by looking at Jesus Christ. He reveals the Father to us. To see Him is to see the Father. And the Christmas message is that God the Father has revealed Himself to the world uniquely in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that you can come and know the Father for yourself, but only through faith in the baby of Bethlehem and the man of Calvary. This message of Christmas, the Christian gospel, is that God himself has come to us in Jesus of Nazareth to make himself known to us in Mary's child. The Son reveals the Father. 
So Jesus is the everlasting Father by way of revelation. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. Hence his title. His purpose in being born was to make known to us the Father in heaven. And the Father we've been separated from because of our sin, yet it is through faith in the Son that we can now know the Father and know that we are loved by Him. That we are so loved by Him that He gave us His only begotten Son so we can be His son or daughter. And Isaiah says, this is our comfort. This is our comfort, that this one coming to everlasting Father is the comfort of the everlasting Father. Another note of comfort, we find this title, is the comfort of adoption. It is through Jesus that we become children of God. My children, at some point in their lives, have all fallen in love with the, with the movie Annie. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen Annie on TV and in plays. We all are familiar with the story of Annie, right? And who is Annie's savior in that story? Daddy Warbucks. What a great name, Daddy Warbucks. That just sounds like a rich name, doesn't it? That's her savior. She's an orphan. She's on her own. Her parents want nothing to do with her. But she has a savior. It's Daddy Warbucks. And the Bible tells us at one point in our lives we're all like Annie. Some of us not as cute as Annie. But we're all spiritual orphans. We're all apart from the family of God. And we can be adopted through Jesus Christ. And Jesus came, born into this world, to seek us out so he may adopt us into that blessed family of God. It's interesting, when we look at the book of Galatians, Paul tells the Christmas story. And he tells it this way. When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. That's the Christmas story, isn't it? In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. Why? Well, he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, so that, and here's why Jesus came, so that we may receive the adoption as sons, so that orphans may come into the family. When Paul looks at the Christmas story, he doesn't get hung up on shepherds and angels and camels and magi and stars and candy canes and Christmas trees or whatever else. All those are wonderful. He doesn't get hung up on that. What's he get hung up on? Born at manger is the only way possible for us to be adopted as the eternal children of God. That baby laid in the manger is the key to our adoption into the family of God. How do we get to be in that family? How, how do we get to go from being orphan Annie to, to family Annie? How do we get to go from being on our own to being a child, a son and daughter of the living God? We believe in Jesus Christ. So John, John says in one twelve, to all who received him, who believed in his name, God gives the right to become children of God, children born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. We can't do anything for our adoption. We can't make ourselves lovely enough. We can't make ourselves attractive enough. We can't, we can't make ourselves hardworking enough. All we can do is believe in Jesus. To receive and rest in him alone for salvation. That's it. There's no song and dance. It's nothing else. 
set to simply believe in who Jesus is and what he has done for you and your salvation. And that's the interest in the salvation. And to having God as your father and being eternally his child. And here's how we know we have been adopted. Because we can say with the same wonder and joy that John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you want to know if you're adopted into the family of God? You can know when you pause and are in wonder that God would love you. And God would choose you. And God would come after you to save you. Not because you have a great last name or family heritage or anything else. But you sit and wonder that God came after you. And that is our comfort on this morn of Christmas Eve. Isaiah tells us that the one coming is everlasting his deity. Will make the Heavenly Father known to us. And will make adoption into God's family possible. I'm willing to go out on a limb this morning and say this. If you are here, then you need this comfort. It may not be right now, but there is something in your life that is happening now or will happen where you need that comfort. It's a comfort the world cannot offer. It's a comfort uh, that Satan will never offer you. It's a comfort only found in Christ. We like to say Jesus is the reason for this season. It's almost become cliche, hasn't it? But as we stand here the day before Christmas, as I stand here and you sit there this day before Christmas, we need to turn to Jesus. Turn to his comfort. Turn to the one who was born for you come for you, to die for you, so you may be adopted into that family. May that be our comfort, not just on this day, but every day of our lives. Let's pray together.